Welcome to each of you this morning. It's good to see some faces I haven't seen in a while. Welcome to you. I, the Cartwrights are here, and we have the Redus with us, and my nephew David, So, and some faces I haven't seen before. So welcome to each of you. Would you turn your Bibles with me this morning to first, or 2 Timothy chapter 1? 2 Timothy chapter 1. This morning we are beginning a new study, a new series in God's Word in the letter of 2 Timothy. I'd like to ask you to stand with me this morning and we will read this text together. We're going to introduce ourselves to the letter of 2 Timothy, Paul's last letter. Let's read this text together in unison, then we will ask the Lord to bless our study this morning. 2 Timothy 1, 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray together this morning. Father, as we come to this text, this new letter for us, we look to you as our Father. We look to you as the one who sent the Spirit to give us understanding, to empower the Word to our hearts that we may think differently, have different values, be changed in our desires and our behaviors. None of us, Father, are too mature in Christ to continue to change. We all need You to take this letter that we begin today and to use it in our lives to make a difference for our own salvation and sanctification, for the advancement of Your kingdom and the gospel in the world, and for Your glory. We thank You, Father, that You have given us such a gift and that we have the Word of God today. We are grateful as we look to the last several hundred years as You have empowered and ordained many men and women over the course of church history to contend for the faith and to preserve this Gospel for us in writing, in teaching, in preaching, in discipleship, from parents to children, from elders and deacons to members, from members one to another, from Christians to unbelievers who have been converted. Father, this is how we have this book. Your ordained means is that the Gospel would be preserved the people would be prepared and the mission would be perpetuated. We ask that You would so affect us by this letter that we would enter that lineage of people and that You would use us to proclaim the Gospel faithfully. Not just through our words, but how we live our lives that our lives would demonstrate the power of the Gospel to change sinners 
into the likeness of Christ. Father, we ask you to take this letter and shape our church corporately. We have no church growth plan. We have your word. And you mold us and make us for the ministries that you have appointed us for in the days ahead. Shape us individually. Develop us into mature, loving servants of Christ. And we will give you praise. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. If you knew that you were going to die in the next few weeks, what would you write on a piece of paper to those whom you loved? Think about that. What would you, if that's the only way that you could communicate to them, what would fill the pages of your letter? Would you, would you fill the pages of your letter with how to handle your earthly assets? Is that what would fill your pages? What would you want to be sure that those whom you loved knew before you left this earth? Your last opportunity to share with them what you think is most valuable of anything in existence. Well, 2 Timothy is the final letter of the Apostle Paul. He's writing to Timothy, probably the one fellow human being that he loves the most. The Apostle Paul was never married, never had children, but he had many children in the faith. And the Apostle Paul called Timothy his son. And in this letter, the Apostle Paul pours out to Timothy the most important realities that are on his heart. In this letter, we can read about what Paul loves and values the most. What fills Paul's heart with gratitude. What is most concerning to Paul, even about his son in the faith, Timothy. We can hear about the place of Paul's confidence and trust. What, believes, what, what Paul believes is worth suffering for in this life. We can hear what Paul believes is most important to be doing with the short life that God has given to each of us. We hear in this letter what Paul says to avoid and to be doing in the Christian ministry. And Paul Four chapters. He's cutting right to the chase. There's a sense of, as you read this letter and you know the historical background, which we're going to talk about today, you think Paul doesn't have that much time left. And so he's eliminating the fluff. He's getting right to the point. He, he's, he's dealing with the most important things. He's telling Timothy, here's what you can depend on. Here's what you need to live for. Here's what you need to die for. Here is what you can value and what you should discard. Here's who you need to be, Timothy. Here is what you need to be doing with your life until God calls you home. That's this letter. Paul is, is really writing his final will and testament to Timothy because 
Paul is literally on death row. And Timothy is the one man whom he has affirmed as God's choice to take the baton of Paul's ministry in the world and carry it on. Paul was given a magnificent trust from God as the apostle to the Gentiles. And now Timothy is there as, his men, as the one whom Paul mentored. You take the baton, Timothy. And so the main idea of this letter, if I could summarize it with a historical thrust, I would say this. Paul writes his final letter to Timothy. Not just to Timothy. This is Paul's final letter, period. In order to preserve the message, he is compelling Timothy in this letter to preserve the message of the gospel, to prepare the man, and to perpetuate the mission. And as I have said so often in the letter of 1 Timothy, this letter was written to Timothy, but it was written for us. We have to remember that. That means something. That means each of us, as we hear these words, we don't just think of them in a historic sense to bear upon the life of Timothy who is already in heaven with the Lord. But this is for us. This is for you. How is this letter going to change you? The way you think about life, the gospel, and the ministry that God has entrusted to us. We have a message to preserve as well. Do you see yourself as the one whom God has called to preserve the message of the gospel? That's you, Christian. That's me. We need to be a people who are prepared to engage in this ministry and mission that, that the Apostle Paul has called us to. We are called to perpetuate the mission of Christ in the world. That's who we are. The Holy Spirit is calling us to this letter to become far more earnest and committed to the things of the kingdom of God, the things that truly matter in life, the things that affect eternal life, the things that bring glory to God, then we do. This letter is filled with gripping exhortations and also grace-filled encouragements to Timothy and for us. So, Think of it this way, dear ones, whether you are being discipled right now or discipling someone else, and everyone should be in one or both of those relationships, you are either being discipled in these things or you are discipling someone else or both. Whether the discipleship that you are engaged in is at your home with your children or your spouse or in our church gatherings, or in the community, life, walking with life, right? The Apostle Paul always talked about discipleship as not just a message spoken, but a life lived together. That's discipleship. You can't have one without the other. Whatever your avenue is, each of one of us needs to hear this last letter of Paul and understand it. Take it to heart. Be changed by it. Apply it. 
through the ministry of the Holy Spirit so that we may, like Paul and Timothy, preserve the message and be a prepared people and perpetuate the mission. I want to take a moment, and, and I understand that this beginning session together is going to feel somewhat weighty because this letter, how could a letter, a letter from a man who is about to leave this earth not be weighty, right? He's not going to be frivolous with his final words. Let me take a moment in that weight and exhort each of you regarding how to gain the most from this letter. Will you let me do that? First, I want you to read this letter with me. I want to invite you to commit to read this letter at least once a week, all the way through. It's four chapters. Just keep reading it. Read it through. Let it fill your mind. Get the content in your mind, in your heart. Second, study this letter with me. And what I mean by that is be present for every session that we have together. If you miss sessions as we study this letter together, it will become difficult for you to follow Paul's logical flow of thought. See, that's, that's the value and the challenge of going verse by verse through a book. I'm not making up these sermons and I don't determine really how long they are because they're units of thought that Paul has strung together and we've got to take the thought unit and discover it. You see? And if you miss those thoughts, you've got holes in your understanding of Paul's logical flow and the book won't congeal for you as it otherwise would. Third, apply this letter with me. Be prayerfully thoughtful. Don't just sit here and listen and then leave without thinking about it on your own or in growth group. Prayerfully think about it. Trust the Word of God. Obey the Word of God as the Spirit gives you grace. Dear ones, there's no more profitable investment of your time and effort than the Word of God than studying the Word of God and giving yourself to the mission of God for which Paul invested his life. Are you willing, think about that, are you willing to give your time and effort for that which Paul gave his life? I hope this letter, and I want this to be for me, for all of us, that this letter would reorient our values. Because when a man who is on death row is writing, he's going to write about what is most valuable and give us a perspective on how to live. We need the Lord Jesus Christ, dear brothers and sisters, to reset that for us, our sense of value and the worth of costly commitment and honoring him. And may he use this letter to do that in us. That's my prayer. That's one of my prayers. I want that for myself and for you. So Paul writes his final letter to Timothy, as we have said, to preserve the message, to prepare the man, to perpetuate the mission. Now how does Paul go about seeking to fulfill those goals in his final letter? Timothy, you've got to preserve the message. You've got, to prepare, you've got to be prepared. Your character must be prepared because you must perpetuate this mission. Well, that's what these first two verses and probably the following ones are about as well. Timothy, 
Paul seeks to fulfill his goals with Timothy by, one, reestablishing his authority. That's the first point, and you'll see that in your outline. He reestablishes his authority. Secondly, Paul revives the ambition, the Christian ambition that should motivate Timothy to keep going. So he reestablishes authority, he revives the ambition, he reaffirms their relationship. That is so important in gospel discipleship that the relationships between God's people would be affectionate and meaningful. And then finally this morning, he refreshes the enablement of God in Paul's, in Timothy's mind. So let's look at these four things. We'll see how far we get this morning. Number one, establishing his authority. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. An apostle, I want, you to, I want to review this a little bit with you. What is an apostle? Paul was an apostle. There's lots of people in the world today in the church that claim that title apostle falsely. What is an apostle genuinely in the New Testament? Well, it's one set off on a mission or a commission as a personal representative of the one who is sending him. And he comes with credentials. The, con- the, the credentials of the one who is sending. And in this case, Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus. That means the sender is Jesus Christ. So he comes, having been sent by Christ on a mission to accomplish something specific, and he comes with the authority and the credentials of Christ himself. That's authority, yes? That is authority. Now, specifically for the 12 apostles and and Paul, the 13th apostle, the qualifications were these, and I won't go to read all the texts for you, but they were personally chosen by Christ. You can't be an apostle unless you were personally chosen by Christ. Second, they were witnesses, eyewitnesses of Christ's words and deeds and His resurrection. They saw the raised Christ, as Paul did, right? Third, they were taught the gospel by Christ Himself. That happened to Paul as well. Galatians 1, 11-22 explains how Paul was taken into the direct tutelage of Christ. They were enabled by the Holy Spirit to receive and impart divine truth. John 14, 26. And then five, five, they were enabled by the Holy Spirit to perform signs and wonders and miracles. You see that? in the lives of the apostles. So, therefore, Christ Jesus sent out the apostles in His name with His authority. Now, again, those, those qualifications, those five clear qualifications, and again, I have Scriptures in my notes here with each one of those, that demonstrates the uniqueness of the apostle of Jesus Christ and how the people who claim apostleship even today, they, they don't have any, those at all. So this is an entirely different thing. Jesus Christ delegated to them His own authority. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And they were the ones upon whose ministry Christ would build His church. 
Ephesians 2, 20 and 21. So this is clearly true of the Apostle Paul. He was to perpetuate the message of Christ, demonstrate the character of Christ, and continue the mission of Christ in the world. Now notice, as Jeremy drew our attention to earlier today, that Paul became an apostle of Christ by the will of God. Paul did not take on this apostolic office for himself. It wasn't a voluntary thing on his part. I think I'll be an apostle. No, this was according to the will of God, according to God's own desires, God's own appointment. God had determined to make Paul his apostle to the Gentiles for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel among them so that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Thankfully, Jeremy did already read for us Acts 9, 1 through 19. You see the clear testimony of Paul, how he was on his way to Damascus to do, continue his persecuting, and in Christ, the risen Christ, arrested him and changed him and said, I have chosen this one to suffer for my name, to spread the gospel among the Gentiles. You see this also in Ephesians chapter 3. You're welcome to turn with, there with me for a moment. I want you to see the, the incredible statements, some of them in Scripture, of Paul's calling. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 3, and verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of man in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are now fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. There you see it, right? God appointed Paul for this task, which was given me by the working of his power. Verse 8, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places." This was according to the eternal purpose that, has, that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul clearly appointed an apostle of Christ. And we've seen this already throughout the pastoral epistle of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 1.12. 1 Timothy 2.5-7. This was God's will that Paul preached the gospel as an apostle to the Gentiles. You can see it again right in verse 11 of the chapter that we're studying. 1 Timothy 1 verse 11. Notice it. For which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher. 
And as the words of God and Paul's appointment make clear, I want you to notice this. He did suffer for the sake of Christ in the proclamation of the gospel. And I think this, the suffering of Paul, the faithful suffering of Paul in his ministry lends to him a weighty authority to say what he's going to say in this text. It's not as if Paul is calling Timothy to something that he's never experienced. We, we kind of all look to the Apostle Paul as the one who suffered the most for the sake of Christ, other than Christ himself. And this underscores the divinely given authority to write such a letter of exhortation to Timothy. The Apostle Paul personally knew Jesus Christ. And he humbly modeled Christ-likeness. How often do we hear Paul say, you imitate me as I imitate Christ. He accurately proclaimed Christ's gospel and he faithfully suffered for the sake of Christ. Dear ones, this letter, I want you to be prepared for this and to open your minds to this by the grace of God. This letter is filled with the theme of suffering for the sake of Christ. For the sake of the gospel. Paul refers to his own suffering in order to compellingly call Timothy to suffer faithfully as well. If you are going to prepare or or to preserve the message and be prepared as a minister, as a faithful servant of Christ, and to perpetuate the mission, you will suffer. No exceptions. Timothy was called to this as well. You can see Paul unload details of his suffering in texts such as 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 12, or 2 Corinthians 6, 4 through 10. And then at the end of the book of Acts, we find Paul under house arrest in Rome for preaching the gospel. That was Paul's first Roman imprisonment. You can read of that in Acts 28, 30, and 31. This is when and where Paul wrote what we have called the prison epistles, right? Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. That's, those were written while Paul was under house arrest in Rome somewhere in the neighborhood of A.D. 60 to 62. And then for a short time, Paul was released from that house arrest, his first Roman imprisonment. And that is when he wrote 1 Timothy and Titus. And he wrote those letters to the delegates that he had sent to the churches in Ephesus and at the island of Crete, Timothy and Titus. And that was sometime between A.D. 63 and 64. And so Paul wrote 1 Timothy and Titus from Macedonia. He was traveling during this time and doing lots of gospel preaching. 1 Timothy 1.3 talks about that. Also, during that time between imprisonments, as I said, Paul continued to travel and he went to several places. We, we are, it is very possible he went to the city of Nicopolis and Crete and Miletus and possibly even reached Spain and Troas. And again, that appears to be Paul's activity between the writing of 1 and 2 Timothy. Then, AD 64 comes along, and Nero is the emperor of Rome. And he decided 
as one of his most famous acts of history that we know of, he decided in his insanity to do what? To burn the city of Rome. Why? So that it could be blamed on the Christians. And that was the beginning of a very intense time of Christian persecution in which Christian leaders were found, targeted, persecuted, and imprisoned. Leaders such as Peter and Paul. These men were arrested, imprisoned, and martyred. Second Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul from the Roman Mamertine prison, A.D. 66 and 67. The Apostle Paul and Peter both spent time in this particular prison. If you were to go to Rome today, you would see on the street this picture or this, this building. Currently, the Mamertine prison is St. Joseph's of the Carpenters, a Roman Catholic church. And if you were to go in there, eventually it would lead you to what is called the upper chamber or the, the carcer. And you can see in this upper chamber, right there in the picture, a hole in the floor. And that was basically the size of a man, and they would drop the men down through that hole. There's the access, if you were looking from the chamber down below up to this room, you can see the manhole access right there. And here, down here on the left, is the lower chamber called the Tullianum. And in this lower chamber, they would keep prisoners on death row. This, this is nothing like Paul's house arrest, right? And this is nothing like the prisons today. This was a dark, dank dungeon, really. And it was next to the sewage system of Rome. It existed for one reason. Holding prisoners of Rome until they could be executed. Here you see in one of the walls, this is about, this room here is about 30 diameter or 30, 30 feet in diameter. Circular, kind of a, a cylindrical room. And you see here on the wall of that room is a door accessing the sewage system of Rome. And so in the floor there's some sort of a well. And I don't know if these things actually work together, but not only would they often remove men from that lower chamber and execute them in various ways publicly so that those watching would refuse to follow in their ways. But I've also heard that somehow they would allow the sewage system of Rome to enter that cylinder and drown the men who were there, and then let it drain out and remove those who are left. That's where Paul was as he wrote this letter. And notice in the letter of 2 Timothy how the Apostle Paul gives some hints about what it was like for him in that horrible place. For example, chapter 1, verse 12, you see that he was suffering. I mean, they, did, they didn't take care of these people down here. It was just there long enough to take their life. He was chained. Chapter 1, verse 16. He was hidden away from public. Chapter 1, 
verse 17, because even when Onesiphorus tried to find him, he had a difficult time. He was suffering. He was chained as a criminal, it says in verse 9 of chapter 2, for I am for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Chapter 4, verses 9 through 13. Notice the descriptors here. This is where Paul becomes, really in a sense, the most open about how he feels and what he needs. Verse 9, Do your best to come to me soon, Timothy. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Dalmatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful for me, to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. He was deserted by those who had often stood with him in the gospel, now deserted, lonely, cold, sleepless, naked, and needing some comfort and encouragement. Bring the cloak. Bring the cloak. I need, I need some warmth. Bring the letters. I need something to read. His martyrdom was very, very soon. You see in chapter 4, verse 6, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. That gives you a, a sense of Paul's suffering in this, at this time. He already felt he was in the process of death. And the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And Paul, in this place of suffering, somehow, by the grace of God, writes this letter, 2 Timothy. He is passing the baton to Timothy with great authority. Every exhortation that he gives to Timothy is filled with, with the authority of Christ Himself. He is imbued with the authority of the will and purposes of God. And it is, His letter is weighted with the authority of a man who has faithfully preached and suffered for the sake of Christ, the gospel, and the church. 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14, he says to Timothy, really in many senses you could see these two verses as the heart of this letter. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Paul writes this final letter to Timothy in order to preserve the message, prepare the man, and perpetuate the mission. So first of all, Paul seeks to fulfill those goals in this letter by reestablishing his authority. But also then secondly this morning, by reviving the ambition. Notice what he says here at the second part of verse 1. Paul, apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, but look, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. He was an apostle to disseminate that message Life by the promises of God. Life in Christ Jesus. Why is it so important that the message be preserved? 
Why is it important that men and women be prepared, that the mission go on? Paul's earthly life and ministry are about to end. Why is he so intensely passionate about Timothy carrying it on? Why does he care? The answer is found in that phrase. Paul shares the longing of God that sinners would be reconciled to God through the person and work of Jesus Christ and thereby receive the gift of eternal life. God has promised. God has made promises, wonderful promises, that every sinner who hears the gospel of Jesus Christ and turns from sin and self-righteousness to trust in His Son will have life, eternal life with Him. But God has also ordained that apart from the message of the gospel, apart from people prepared to live gospel-demonstrating lives before one another, and apart from the mission being perpetuated, that sinners will not be reconciled to God through faith in His life and death and resurrection. And therefore, they will not have eternal life in His name. The Scripture clearly tells us this. Instead, if they don't hear the message, they'll be forever separated from Christ, alienated from the life of God, without hope, destined to exist under the wrath of God, strangers to God's promises. But God is merciful and gracious and loving, and so He poured those same holy qualities of mercy and grace and love into Paul's heart as he does into the hearts of every true believer. And with those qualities comes a great passion, a great passion for sinners to be rescued and God to be glorified for His amazing, merciful acts of saving sinners from the slavery to their own sin and the punishment that they deserve through His Son. So Paul's reminding Timothy of of one of the greatest ambitions that the Holy Spirit gives to every true Christian. That more sinners, just like us, would enjoy the fulfillment of every promise of God and eternal life through Jesus Christ. Are you filled with that passion? John 20, 31 says, These are written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you has life in His name. You want to spread that, don't you? Don't you want to say to others that this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life. 1 John 5, 11 and 12. Remember the words of Paul. Romans 10, 13 through 17, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How will they hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what we, he has heard from us? So faith comes from what? Hearing. Hearing through the word of Christ. This is why this final letter is so vitally important. It is filled with the ambition that God has offered eternal life. He's promised eternal life 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thirdly, Paul seeks to fulfill these goals of preserving the message and preparing the man and perpetuating the mission. He he fulfills those goals by first of all reestablishing his authority, second, reviving the ambition, but thirdly, reaffirming their relationship. Notice verse 2, it's written to Timothy, my beloved child, Timothy. Who is Timothy to Paul? And why does it matter for this letter? Well, you you remember uh, Timothy's life, Acts 16. We know that Timothy grew up in Lystra. He was the son of a pagan Greek father, the son of a a grandson of Jewish women. His mother was Eunice, his grandmother was Lois, and those two women were likely converted under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. So Timothy is indirectly a disciple, well, he's a direct disciple of Paul, but indirectly a convert of Paul's ministry. Timothy became a disciple of Jesus as those two women taught him the sacred writings of Scripture. He followed the faith that was in his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice, 2 Timothy 1.5. We'll look at that in weeks to come. They were the ones who taught him those sacred writings. They He was acquainted with the sacred writings from childhood. He learned them. He firmly believed the sacred writings. It made him wise for salvation. He was spoken well of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, so much so that Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him on his missionary journeys. And together, Paul and Timothy strengthened the churches. Timothy was Paul's child in the faith. 1 Corinthians 4.17 says it clearly. Paul's beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Notice what, listen to what Paul says of of Timothy in Philippians 2.19-24. He talks there about Timothy serving with him in the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a son would serve his father, Paul says. Timothy was Paul's co-worker fellow worker in the gospel. He went to Thessalonica with Timothy. went to Berea. All kinds of places. Timothy accompanied Paul in the ministry. Ephesus, Corinth, Macedonia. You can read of this in so many accounts in the book of Acts. In 1 Corinthians 16.10, Paul affirms to the Corinthians that Timothy was doing the work of the Lord as Paul was. Paul says, then put him at ease. Don't despise him. Help him. Return him to me. First, 2 Corinthians 1.19, Timothy worked with Paul and Silas in Corinth. Paul says in Philippians 2 that he had no one like Timothy. Interesting statement. I have no one like Timothy who is genuinely concerned for the welfare of others, seeking the interest of Christ, not his own interests. He was proven to have great worth in the ministry of the gospel. In 1 Thessalonians 3, 2 and 6, Paul affirmed Timothy as a brother, God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. Timothy was also Paul's assistant author. 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, Philemon, all note that Timothy assisted Paul in the writing of those letters. Timothy was Paul's appointed emissary. We've already learned this from 1st Timothy, that Paul urged him to remain in Ephesus so that he could correct error 
and preach the gospel. Paul says he's a young man, but he's gifted by God and ordained to the ministry by the Apostle Paul. He's entrusting him with the sacred deposit of the message of the gospel and the care of the church. And finally, Paul only replaced Timothy in Ephesus when he wanted Timothy to come to him at the Mamertine prison, bring the cloak, bring the books, bring the parchments. Timothy was afflicted himself in the work of ministry. We've noted that from the letter of 1 Timothy, chapter 5, that he was sick. Paul advises him to take wine medicinally. Timothy loved Paul dearly. In fact, you'll see here in the first letter that he shed tears over Paul's departure. And he longed to be with him. He struggled with fear. Paul tells him, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and sound mind. He was gifted by God. He had a sincere faith. Hebrews 13.23 notes that Timothy was imprisoned himself and would be accompanied by the author of Hebrews to see the audience of the letter of Hebrews. Historical tradition tells us that Timothy was martyred in Ephesus 30 years later for opposing the worship of the goddess Diana. In spite of Timothy's afflictions and struggles, he became a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. Timothy was who he was as a man of God, largely because of God's work through the Apostle Paul in his life. Paul had poured himself into Timothy as a spiritual son. They stood side by side through so much ministry and suffering Paul had affirmed and appointed Timothy to a difficult ministry assignment and faithfully helped him through the challenges. You can see the relationship. If you read the New Testament, I'm just skimming over the surface, you, you see there was this deep, genuine relationship as a father to a son. Their relationship was holy, masculine, spiritually affectionate in their relationship. They deeply love one another in Christ. And it is in that spiritual relationship and affection to which Paul draws Timothy's attention. To Timothy, my beloved child. So that Timothy would be motivated by that affirmation, that affection of love and loyalty to continue the work that Paul has begun that kind of relationship and affection is vital. It's, it's a vital piece of how God enables us to be faithful to the gospel. How often when someone has told you, I love you in Christ, I want this for you, how often do you remember those interchanges, maybe even when you're considering bailing out and pulling back? It's like, I can't do this. I can't do this. There is too much Christ-given love in this relationship. That can hold you. That can help you. That can keep you loyal and accountable. And Paul draws Timothy's attention to that in this letter. Finally, this morning, Paul seeks to fulfill these goals of preparing the man, perpetuating the ministry, preserving the message by not only reestablishing his authority, 
reviving the ambition, thirdly, by reaffirming their relationship, but then finally this morning, refreshing the enablement in Timothy's mind. Look at the last phrase. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is how Paul starts his letters, right? It's intentional. This isn't just some random, uh, culturally acceptable, typical opening. This is Paul reminding his readers, this is what you need as you get into this letter. You're going to need grace and mercy and peace. Paul is refreshing in Timothy's mind all of the spiritual and powerful resources that are available to him through the Holy Spirit, from God his Father, because of the intercessory reign of Christ. Timothy is a born-again, spirit-filled atoned for, declared righteous child of God. And God is for him in all of this. God is for him. That's what Timothy's, that's what Paul is saying to Timothy. God is for you. He'll provide to you everything you need to preserve the message and be prepared for whatever he has appointed for you in the future. And, and he will enable you to keep the ministry going no matter what the demand, no matter what the cost. He's given you grace. You have grace. God's undeserved, unending favor lavished on you because of the merit of Christ, not your own. God's enabling power, ability, strength, skill to do all that God would command and call you to do for His glory. That's grace. Paul was reminding Timothy, you have that grace. You stand in it. And so do you, dear ones. Mercy. God's undeserved and unending pity and compassion to lift him out and hold him fast from the punishment for sin that he would have claimed him. Lift him out, hold him fast from the mastery of sin that would have ruled his life but no longer does. And lift him up and hold him fast from the corruption of the fall that would have destroyed him. Now he has mercy, mercy, compassion. And God will never hold it back. He has peace. What is that? God's eternal friendship. That's peace. I'm no longer an enemy of God because of my sin. I'm at peace with God. God's eternal friendship. Eternal rest in Christ. Eternal calm in the midst of any troubling circumstance. All of that Timothy has. All of that you have, child of God. All of it. Endless supplies. Grace. Mercy. Peace from God, the Father, and the Savior, Jesus Christ. I love this little phrase here. You've got to see it. From God, the Father, and Christ, Jesus our Lord. That phrase, Paul is intentionally positioning the Father and the Son as equal people in the Trinity, equal persons of the Trinity who dispense this grace, mercy, and peace to to their children. You have the Trinity for you. Timothy had the Trinity at work for him, in him, through him. If the Trinity is for you, who can be against you? Timothy needed to know that, and so do you. You need to have that truth refreshed in your mind. Timothy needed that because Paul's exhortations in this letter were demanding. Let me just list some for you. Think about this. Think about if Paul wrote these exhortations right to you you got a letter in your mailbox, and here is Paul saying to you, fan into flame the gift of God. 
Don't be ashamed of the testimony, but share in the suffering of the gospel. Follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and trust that deposit to faithful men. Share in suffering. Think about what I'm saying. Remember Christ Jesus and how He suffered. Remind others of these things. Charge others before God not to quarrel about words. Do your best to present yourself to God as a workman who rightly divides the word of truth. Avoid irreverent babble. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Avoid people like that. Continue in what you've learned and firmly believed. Preach the word. Be ready whenever it is time to preach the gospel. Always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry Do your best to come to me soon. Bring the cloak, also the books, above all the parchments. Beware of these people who are enemies of the gospel. Greet one another. Do your best to come before winter. Wow. That's a book that's full, isn't it? What are we getting ourselves into? But this is the Apostle Paul's letter, final letter to Timothy, and it's for us. And Paul or Timothy needs to be strengthened in God's grace and mercy and peace because, honestly, this letter implies that Timothy is struggling. He's probably grieving over Paul's soon execution. Maybe he's feeling despair. He's fearful. He's fearful of what will happen to him instead of fanning into flame the gift that God has given to him. He's probably feeling the shame of association with the gospel and with the Apostle Paul. Could you imagine? Paul asking him, I want you to come to the Mamertine prison and bring me those things. Think about that. Anybody who would be associated with the Apostle Paul would probably be under the watchful eye, right? Of the Roman emperor. Don't be ashamed, Timothy. Don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Be ready to suffer. Do what's right. Come and see me. Timothy may be even struggling to persevere in the faith and in following Paul. He has this whole section where he's saying, this person's left me and this person's left me and this person's left me. Timothy, follow me. Stay true. Timothy's feeling weak and distracted. Timothy is being tempted to follow the crowd rather than Paul and continuing in what he's learned from the inspired scriptures, chapter 3. Timothy's holding back from preaching the way he needed to, chapter 4. And Paul is in earnest to call Timothy to fulfill his ministry and be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus so that Timothy may be successful to take the baton from Paul and faithfully finish the course. Have you ever felt those things that Paul, that Timothy's struggling with in the work of the gospel? You ever felt afraid, ashamed, weak, distracted, overwhelmed, in despair? That's what this letter is going to help you with. It's going to help us through that. It's going to fashion us into prepared servants of Christ for the sake of the gospel. This is why we're here. This is why we exist. In closing this morning, As I said earlier, this letter was written to Timothy, but it's for us. 
As you've heard these words from the Apostle Paul just introducing this this morning, I want to ask you, is the Holy Spirit pressing a sense of urgency on your heart in this letter? Do you know that you need this letter? Are you expecting to be changed by this letter? How do you want the Lord to change you? At no time in history of the Western church is this letter more important than it is right now. And Christ is coming soon. I wonder if the Apostle Paul would even recognize us as the church. When I look in this and see the details, I'm like, wow. Is that so different than who we are? And it is. In many ways, as a local body of Christ, as leaders in the body of Christ, as individual families that comprise this local body, as individual members in the body of Christ, we must own the message of this letter. The authority of Christ and His appointed leaders command our obedience to it. Do you agree? As leaders, or the ambition to see God's promises about eternal life fulfilled in the lives of sinners, that compels our engagement, does it not? The relationships of affection that we have with one another in the body of Christ demand our loyalty to one another and to Christ. The enablement provided to us from the resources of the Trinity leave us without any excuse for backing away. We must preserve the message as well by God's grace and be a prepared people to perpetuate the mission. And let me say this. These four things, these points, this is the beginning of an excellent discipleship paradigm for us to follow and continue. If you want to make disciples, this is the model. If you want to be a faithful disciple, this is the model. Paul to Timothy. So may God enable us to take the baton too, right? From Paul and Timothy through this letter. So will you earnestly join me, join me in this endeavor? I'm inviting you. You have the invitation. Let's go into this letter together for all that God can give for us. And then by the grace of God, let us keep faithfully passing on the baton to others for the salvation of sinners and the glory of God. One final question before I pray. I was just looking at that phrase promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Do you know this morning that you are a recipient of those very promises? Are you convinced that you have life in Christ Jesus? Do you have it? Have you come to God in faith and begun to enjoy the fulfillment of that promise? If you hold on to your sin and love it, and continue in it, without repentance, you don't have that promise for you. If you have the Son, you have eternal life. But you can't live your life without repentance toward your sin and have the Son too. If you hold on to your self-righteousness and say, I can make it myself by the good things that I do, 
If you say that and you hold on to yourself, you can't have Christ too. He saves only those who are willing to let go of their sin and let go of their own ability to save themselves. That's what the Scriptures teach us. If you hold on to your false ideas about who God is and who you are and what salvation is, then you cannot have the Son or the eternal life that He gives you. If you choose to hold your sin and reject Christ, then you will be justly held under the wrath of God forever. I say that because I love you. I want you to know that truth. But God is merciful and gracious. And He longs to bring you into this peace that Paul writes about. Through Jesus Christ. Sinners can be made friends of God when they come to Christ, when they have Christ. Why? Why Christ? Because He lived a perfectly sinless life to clothe you in His righteousness by faith. And He died on the cross to absorb your guilt and the punishment that your sin deserves. And He'll do that if you trust Him. And He rose to give you everlasting life. He rose from the dead. He conquered death to make you spiritually alive and make you live forever. So the only way that you can have eternal life is if you have the Son. Because He lived. He died. He rose. Do you have Him? If you don't, I urge you today, let go of your sin. It's not worth it. You will regret it if you hold on to this life of sin and refuse Christ. Let go of self-righteousness. I know it is a, a pride-crushing thing to say, I can't do it. But Christ can. And rest in Christ as your Savior. Then God's promises to you about eternal life will be fulfilled. You can count on God's Word. He who has the Son has what? Life. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Heavenly Father, we confess to you that we fall so short of the requirements of this letter. Our values are not like the values of the Apostle Paul. Our words are not like his. We're more like Timothy. Father, we fear. We feel ashamed, often weak and discouraged. Father, lift us through this letter. May we see what true life is about. May we see how you want to prepare us personally for the good works that you've called us to. May the message be even more clearly defined in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, that we can proclaim it clearly and effectively as we ought to. Help us to understand that the call of this letter and the call to discipleship and the call to proclaim the gospel is not for some Christians, but for every follower of Christ. We pray that you would press that into our hearts, change our minds. We confess these things to you and we're thankful for your forgiveness for we do fall short of your glory. And we thank you that in Christ we are righteous and forgiven, and you have also, though, given us a new heart that longs to embody 
what we see in this letter. So we ask you to do it. We are but children, and we need you to grow us up and to make us good servants of Christ. We pray in the name of Jesus and for your glory. Amen.